worthy to be praised. God, we pray now that you would speak to us from on high. Bless the proclamation of this word. Use it for your glory and honor and to bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me once again to the gospel according to St. Matthew as we continue our theme, um, How's Your Attitude, for this series of, of sermons. Today we want to focus uh, the sermonic spotlight on verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I hope that you've been enjoying and gaining and growing from this series like I have. And today what I'm going to do is um, do a brief review of the first five uh, attitudes. And then we'll delve for the remainder of our time <coughs> excuse me, into attitude six. Over the past five weeks, we've been making our way through the Beatitudes, which is a part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, Jesus teaches his followers nine essential lessons concerning the attitude that every believer in Jesus Christ should have. He's teaching them and teaching us, if you're going to be my follower, this is the attitude that you must have. The world has an attitude, a set of values, uh, a, a way of doing things, but a way of thinking, but your attitude should be in line with what I'm teaching you. Jesus prefaces each attitude with this great word, and we love this word, blessed. The word blessed in the text means to be happy, to be joyful, to be supernaturally satisfied. So in essence, Jesus is saying those who practice the attitude that I'm teaching them will be blessed, be happy, be supernaturally satisfied. So it stands to reason if you want to be happy, if you want to have real joy, if you want to be blessed and, and, and be supernaturally satisfied, even in a world that's full of so much turmoil, you can have it. You can have joy. You can have satisfaction. You can be happy in spite of everything that's going on around you. Jesus says, with these nine attitudes. And mind you, these attitudes are not uh, shaped or or touched, or moved, or manipulated by external motivating things, but these attitudes assure happiness from the inside, and the world can't touch it. So it is in lesson one, Jesus taught, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's there in verse three. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who look deep within themselves, and, and not only recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, that we are spiritually bankrupt without a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we also trust Jesus to supply us with everything that we need in order to bring our lives into right relationship with him. So that's who the, 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 the pure in heart are. The, uh, I'm sorry, the poor in spirit are those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. And that we trust Jesus to bring our lives in line with his and then to bless us with all that we need. The poor in spirit 
trust Jesus to supply them with everything they need in order to bring their lives in right relationship with God. The poor in spirit don't trust in laws and regulations and rules and bylaws or good works or any stringent legalism to save them. But rather, the poor in spirit trust the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross alone to save them from their sins. That is to say, the poor in spirit are not trusting in uh, all of the good things they do for the Lord to save them. The poor in spirit trust totally in what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. After him writer so profoundly penned, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What is the sweetest frame? I dare not trust the law. I dare not trust tradition. I dare not trust religion. I dare not trust fad. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust any amount of work that I can do. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's important spirit. Lesson two, Jesus taught. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse four, for they shall be confident. To mourn means to grieve, to lament, to be deeply sorry for the sins we committed against God. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed if you are torn up on the inside Uh over the sins that you've committed in your life. Blessed are you if you mourn, if you grieve when you've done something wrong against God, against somebody else, against yourself, against the church. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are lament, when you are torn up Uh over the wrongs that we have done. Mourning over sin leads to confession. That's why Jesus said you're blessed if you mourn because when we're really sorry, it leads to confessing that sin to God. Confession leads to repentance. That means when we're truly sorry, we don't keep on doing the sin that we've been doing. When we're truly sorry, we confess it, we repent. That means we turn away from it, not to participate in it anymore and repentance true repentance when we turn away from sin true repentance then leads to forgiveness and forgiveness leads to the washing away of that guilt and shame what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus. All precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain. Yes, no, nothing yes. but the blood of Jesus. When we repent, yes. Jesus washes away our sins, removes the guilt and the shame. Yes, yes. Takes the shackles off our feet so yes. we can dance, so we can praise him, right. so we can love him. We don't walk around with our heads down. We walk around with our heads up because we know that God has forgiven us of our sins and washed our sins away. People hold on to our sins. But God forgives us. 
then confession leads to repentance and repentance leads to forgiveness and forgiveness leads to washing away of guilt and shame and the washing away of the guilt and shame for our past sins leads to the comfort Uh that only God can give. That means that I might not be all right with everybody else, but I'm all right with God. I might not be able to please everybody else with my laments, with my grief, with my sorrow, but Jesus says you're blessed because now you're all right with God. And there's nothing more important in the world than being all right with God. People may not forgive you, but when God forgives you, you're all right with God. And there's some relationships, no matter how hard you work, to restore them. You won't be able to restore them, but one thing is certain, you are right with God. No wonder Jesus says mourners will be comforted. Lesson three, Jesus taught blessed are the meek in verse five. Meekness does not mean weakness. One of the greatest leaders ever to be chosen by God was Moses, yet Listen to what the Bible says about Moses in Numbers 12 and 3. Now the man Moses, don't miss this, was very humble. That means that Moses was meek. Great leader, but humble. Outstanding leader, but but meek. The Bible says he was meek or, or more humble than all the men who were on the face of the earth. It was meek. Mild-mannered Moses Uh that led God's people Uh for 40 years. Meekness does not mean weakness. Consider the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Uh in Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, watch this now. Mary said, for he has regarded uh-huh. the lowly state. Yes. Yes. That word lowly in the text means meek. Uh-huh. It means humble. Here she is, humble and meek, referring to herself. God has, 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 has uh, regarded the lowly state of his, watch this, made serve. Behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Jesus said in, of himself in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor are and are heavy laden. That means come to me, everybody who is loaded down, burdened down. With the cares of life and with the cares of the world. Jesus says, come to me. He said, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, don't forget, don't miss this. Jesus said, for I am gentle and lowly. That word in the text means I am meek. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meekness does not mean weakness. 
So it is when Jesus spoke about meekness, he was not encouraging weakness. Rather, the word meek as it is used in the third beatitude means power under control. Moses had power, but it was under control. Mary had power, but it was under control. Jesus had power, but his power was under control. Jesus says you'll be blessed when your power is under control. Jesus is saying blessed are those who can control themselves. They can control their lips. They can control their lives. They are not loose cannons on deck. They aren't disasters looking for some place to happen. They are cool, calm, and collective because their power is under the sovereign control of God. Jesus says the meek will inherit the best that God has to offer on this earth. His power, his, his presence, his, his peace, his provisions. And then in the world to come, they will inherit eternal life. Left and forth, Jesus taught, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness has, have insatiable appetites. That means they just can't get enough. An unquenchable thirst thirst to live life in conformity to God's word, God's will, and God's way. That's what he's talking about. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness find themselves intensely motivated to join other followers of Jesus for worship. There's an intense motivation. Obviously, those of you who got up early this morning and some of you drove many miles to get here, obviously, you have an intense motivation to be here on Sunday morning to worship with God's people. That's what Jesus is talking about. You are hungering and thirsting for for worship. So you get up out of your comfortable beds and you come early in the morning to worship. Those who hung in thirst for righteousness are motivated to join others on on the Lord's day uh, and at other times for worship for midweek Bible study and and prayer meeting. And and it amazes me still how people will work all day long. And on Wednesday drive miles and miles and miles just to get the Bible study and prayer meeting. I, I rejoice when I come to this church on Wednesday. I know people have had long days Monday, long days Tuesday, long days Wednesday on the highway driving. Jesus said, you're going to be blessed because you got that hunger and that thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for times of personal and private devotions as well as opportunities for Christian fellowship for growth and development. Here's another fascinating side note about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You already know this. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, junk food diets won't satisfy. Am I right about it? 
I mean, when you're really hungry and thirsting for the real thing, junk food diets won't satisfy you. Won't satisfy that deep spiritual hunger. Little pep talks won't satisfy. Ease of believism won't satisfy. So when you miss worship, when you miss Bible study, or when you miss prayer meeting, those who hunger and thirst have an emptiness inside. You feel like something is not right. You feel a void on the inside. Even when you are sick and you cannot come out, you lie in bed thinking about worship. And there's a void. Even as a little boy, I felt that void. If I miss church and, and all, all week long, it just seemed like things just, it just wasn't right. And on Sunday, I would watch my friends and watch other people coming home from, from worship, and, and it just didn't feel right. That's when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Television and sports and leisure activities all have a place in a Christian's life, but those who really hunger and thirst for righteousness soon discover that sports and, and leisure and television and anything else cannot satisfy the soul on fire for God, soul set ablaze by God's Holy Spirit, like being fed from the table of God's word, from the table of God's will, and from the table of God's way. When you hunger and thirst, nothing else will satisfy. You've got to have a word. You got to have a word from, from God. Nothing else satisfies like a word from God. On Monday morning, on your job, you need a word from God. All during the week, you need to rely on that word. And you want to be fed from the table of his word, his will, his way, and you keep going back over and over and over again, even when you feel like, Jeremiah, I'm not going. Other things that I can do, I don't want to go, but that hunger and that thirst drives you here over and over and over again. One of my wife's favorite ice cream stores, and I'm not going to name the store, and I didn't ask her permission. Sometimes I ask her permission to use her in illustrations. I didn't ask permission on this one. I'm going to use it. I think being married uh, almost 40 years ought to give you some kind of leverage. You know, you ought to have some kind of liberty. <laughs> but, but, but one of her favorite ice cream stores, and I enjoy taking her there because I I enjoy seeing her face light up even before we get there. They have three cup sizes for serving ice cream. Now, some of y'all know the name of the store, so don't, don't shout it out. And if you don't, see, sister, pick it after church. But the smallest cup size they have on the counter is like it. It's a like it. That's a, that's a little cup. The next cup size is the love it. Uh -huh. That cup of ice cream just a little bit 
bigger. That's for a little person that's a little more serious about this. But the largest cup size is got to have it. So last week she came home. She went out there without me. She came home. She got back. I said, what size is that? I said, that's not a like it and all. So I love it. No, it's, it's got to have it. Well, that's what Jesus is saying in his, his attitude. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will find that liking it is okay. Loving it is okay, but you got to have it. Do we have any got to have it? In church this morning, do we have any folk here that Sunday morning you just got to have it? Folk give you off your tickets to the Bucks game, but you say no. I got to have church. I I got to have it. Trip to the mall? No, I got to have it. Let's go shopping? No, I got to have worship. I got to be in God's house. Those who hunger and thirst for righteous got to have it. You got to have worship. You got to have Bible study. You got to have your personal devotional time. You got to have fellowship with other followers of Jesus. You, you got to have it. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Lesson five, blessed are the merciful. Verse seven, for they shall obtain mercy. The word Jesus uses in the text includes demonstrating forgiveness and compassion. You know, you know, if there's anywhere people ought to be able to receive forgiveness and compassion, it's amongst God's people. Therefore, Jesus teaches his followers, teaches that his followers should always be in forgiving mode and in compassion mode. Now, let me hasten to say when Jesus says we, his followers, ought to be forgiven and compassionate, he's not saying we ought to be irresponsible. All right. For example, if a family member or a church member or a friend or a co-worker borrows money from you and fails to pay you back, responsible forgiveness says, while I forgive you of this debt, I do forgive you. I want you to understand that I'm not holding this thing against you. I forgive you. But I recommend you get counseling from a good financial counselor. One who will be able to look at your income, look at your expenditures, help you get on a budget, refer you to a debt consolidation organization to help you get your finances straight, but I will not be loaning you any more Money. Amen. Amen. Or if your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend is verbally and physically or physically 
abusing you or your children and that places your life or your lives of your children in danger. Uh-huh. <coughs> Responsible forgiveness. Right, right. Right. Biblical-based forgiveness right. says, yes, I forgive you. Uh-huh. I'm not holding this thing against you. Right, you, right. you hurt me, I forgive you. But you need help. I'm recommending you see a Christian counselor, but you will no longer put your hands on me or on my children, nor will you place us in harm's way. And by the way, I'm demonstrating compassion that Jesus talked about because I have not called a sheriff on you yet to lock you up. This is tough stuff. But that's what Jesus is saying. Being forgiven, forgiven and compassionate, but being responsible. Even in the church, forgiveness must be responsible. When a pastor or a church leader or a member is caught up in sin, we ought to forgive them. Immediately, we ought to forgive them. And love them. However, responsible forgiveness is not membership making excuses for sin. Responsible forgiveness is not allowing people to lead or serve when they are not biblically qualified to lead or serve. Responsible forgiveness and compassion means relieving them from duty and providing prayer support and time and in some cases financial help to those who have fallen to adequately help them work through the issues that cause their fall. Because if those issues are not worked through properly, they will continue to fall and cripple other people along the way. Now verse 8, lesson 6. I'm going to tarry here just for a little while and I'll let you go. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. In order to understand why Jesus placed great emphasis on the matter of being pure in heart, we need to know that the two leading uh, two of the leading religious groups to, of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, were more concerned with looking holy than they were about being holy. So what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about a motive check. They were more concerned with outward displays of righteousness than they were with the inward condition of their heart. They were more interested in protecting their self righteous images than they were about having clean hearts. So it was their efforts to impress people with public exhibitions of holiness were well established. Even in their dress, they wore long, colorful, and impressive looking robes with tassels that identified them exclusively on the outside as men of God. Their prayers were lengthy and often worded to make them look good, themselves look good and sound good. Good. When they when when, when they gave money 
to the poor. They gave alms to the poor. They sounded a trumpet in order to call as much attention, uh, public attention as possible to their deeds. In other words, if they had something to give, somebody who was in need, instead of trying to give it to them in private, uh, they would gather a crowd and blow a trumpet and call attention. They wanted everybody to see how holy they were on the outside. They even used the giving of tithes and offerings as a means of publicly declaring themselves in right standing with God to which Jesus replied in Matthew 23, 25 woe to you scribes that word woe means I'm warning you woe to you scribes and Pharisees woe to you I'm displeased woe to you your motives are not right woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites that's what Jesus said. The hypocrite is masquerading, pretending to be one way, but really on the inside, another way. Like an illustration I read just the other evening of a man who was on his way to a masquerade party. And he was dressed up like the devil. You know, when people go to these parties, you know, masquerade, they dress up like, like different characters. So he was dressed up like the devil. So on the way to this party, he ran off the road into a ditch, and he, he tried and tried and tried, but he couldn't get his car started again. So he got up, and he began to walk, and he wasn't, hadn't gone very far before he looked out in the distance, and he saw old country church with the lights on. So he thought, I'll go over there, and maybe I can get some help. When he got there, he walked in the door and not thinking he had his devil suit on. People saw him, they began to run. Some jumped out the window, some jumped, jumped out, ran out the, out the back door. But there was one old lady standing there that, that didn't run. And she said to him, Devil, I don't know why you came here tonight. He said, but I want you to know something. I've been in this church 40 years, and I've walked with you every step of the way. Talk about masquerading. Yeah. Hypocrites, Jesus said, pretending to be one way, but really another. He said, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Verse 26, blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, pretenders, for you are like whitewashed sepulcher, whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful outwardly but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. The whitewashed sepulchers were the tombs that they put dead people in, bodies in. On the outside they were painted beautiful and white but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones Jesus said. So with these words Jesus levies a heavy indictment against the scribes and the Pharisees who are fronting who are faking, who are fraudulent concerning their relationship with God. 
So it is, the essence of verse 8 comes more clearly into focus. If Jesus says to his followers, blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word Jesus uses for pure in heart in verse 8, does that mean sinless perfection? If it did, none of us would qualify. But it means a heart that does not bring mixed motives and divided loyalties to its relationship with God. It's a heart of singleness and devotion to God. It's, 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 it's pure, unmixed devotion. David, a man after God's own heart, captures the idea of purity of heart in Psalm 86, 11, and 12 when he wrote, Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God. Get this, David said, with all my heart. That's purity. And I will glorify your name forever. Purity of heart is represented by unwavering focus, uncompromising concentration, unabated sincerity, and undeniable absorption with God. The great pastor preacher Martin Lord Jones said, blessed are those who are pure, not only on the surface, but as the song said earlier, in the center of their being. And at the source of every activity, Jesus be the center of my life. From my heart to the heavens. Pure in heart, save Jesus be the center 